there's nothing set in your neurology or your neurochemistry that you can't undo, bar of obviously some diagnosable particular conditions. So I obviously acknowledge that. But I think for the great majority of people, just because you don't have a lot of self-worth or just because you think things always go bad or just because you think you're unlucky or you don't think you deserve a particular thing, you can change that if you're willing to do the work to change that. But that's where I think a lot of people fall down is they're not prepared to do the work. Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. Welcome back to Better Thinking. My name is Nesh Nikolic and today's guest is Sean O'Gorman. He's a police officer of 13 years from Queensland Police as a dog handler and he was diagnosed with PTSD and depression before leaving. He had a 15-year corporate career before he started what he calls the Strong Life Project where he helps alpha males live their best life in some sense and overcome challenges and difficulties in life. Today's episode, we, we talk about taking responsibility of one's own life, being willing to do the hard work and in, in many essences, uh, hard love. It's something that clearly oozes out of Sean's work. He, he, he not only is, 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 believes in hard love and, and you know, taking responsibility, you know, doing, doing the hard work, but he also breathes it himself, which is what makes this an interesting podcast. So hope you enjoy the episode. And uh, if you do like it, please go out and subscribe. Go out and give us a you know, five-star rating. Share with others. Appreciate all the love coming our way. Thanks very much. Hi, Sean. Thank you for coming on to the show. Hey, Nash, how are you? Pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's fantastic to be able to uh, chat with you today. I know that I've had previously on, on episodes police officers and other first responders, so thank you for, for coming on. It's something that I really enjoy doing because you guys really have a, a unique way of uh, not only viewing the world but from your experiences, the, 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 the life that you have led has probably shone a different angle to, to, to life. And so I love picking the brains of, uh, of uh, people like yourself. So thanks for coming on. Yeah, fantastic. No, thanks, mate. That's, uh, we certainly have a different perspective, not necessarily a more positive one, I don't think, but it's <laughs> definitely different. We can tell you why. Well, once you put a room full of psychologists together, uh, you'd be scratching your head as well, right? <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> Well, maybe we can now start with a little bit of intros and I'll, I'll let you do it yourself. Uh, you, you know, obviously, your story much better than anyone. Um, I yeah, know sure. you've been a police officer for 13 years. Maybe we can take from there. Yeah, sure, mate. So I joined the police uh, a long time ago now when I was 19 and was in the police for 13 years, worked in the police canine unit for nine. So with the German Shepherd dog working on my own, I did a lot of work with uh, the special emergency response team, SWAT team. And I was never I was never part of that unit, but I was the tactical dog handler for that unit. I did a couple of years in covert surveillance, so working on major organised crime, and then left the police in uh, 2002, so a long time ago now, with PTSD and clinical depression and battled suicide for many years. Went through a 15-year corporate career, and my standard joke, mate, that, that I make is I worked in commercial property for 15 years, and I met more psychopaths in that industry than I did in the police. And then come out the other side and um, now run the Strong Life Project, which has been the culmination of 
15, 17 years, depending where you start, of my own education, personal development, all sorts of stuff around neuroplasticity, neurogenesis, all of those things to try and help my help me understand how I was the way I was and then come out of that hole. Can I just ask you a little bit about your your career working with uh, uh, with an animal um, as a canine handler? Yes. You you, you mentioned that uh, uh, you, you did that solo, or maybe I didn't didn't understand that well. Is, is that yeah, solo right. work? Is 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 your dog considered your partner? Because I know that in police you kind of have to go in twos. Well, that's my very vague. Yes. Uh, generally speaking, I suppose. Uh, is that not the case for um, working with, 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 with an animal? No, so canine handlers, dog handlers, we call them here. Dog handlers? States. Yeah, dog handlers work on their own. So I would work predominantly 8 p.m. to 4 a.m. shifts. It was myself and my dog, I two dogs, Khan and Duke, over that period. And you are, you're, not, you're a non-taskable unit is what they call it. So you only go to the, the most urgent jobs, so the most violent, the most urgent and we don't do paperwork, very rarely do arrests. So it's a it's critical a critical first response role. So you do, you spend eight or 10 hours a day on your own in a car with the dog. So uh, yeah, you become pretty close. Wow. Well, I met a, uh, a, a German shepherd recently that uh, didn't make the cut. Uh, it was a bit, bit oh, too okay. timid. Um, yeah. The most the most voracious dog I've ever 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 met, but it was uh, yeah, didn't make the cut. Was it wasn't voracious enough? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so well, they, they, they need to be pretty pretty tough, I guess, because they, in a lot of ways, when you know, once you deploy a dog, everything else bar lethal force has been used. So, uh, you know, if they don't, if they let you down, then there's some issues. Yeah, yeah. Moving forward, your you're involved in or, or, you know, the, the, the founder of the Strong Life Project. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about that? I know it skips your, your um, uh, corporate, corporate years uh, uh, where, where you met most, most uh, psychopaths. But, uh, yeah, that's right. Mate, the Strong Life is based on six principles. Now, it's living with strength, tenacity, resilience, optimism, nurturing, generosity, hence the acronym. And for me, the Strong Life's really a lot of the lessons that I learned during my life, having worked with a lot of professionals like yourself, uh, worked with a lot of alternate medicine people, everything I could possibly find to try and come out of the hole I was in with PTSD and depression. So the strong life is the culmination of all of those things. And through that process, I got to the point of understanding that I had a bit of a knack to be able to help people with some of these things. And in a lot of ways, one of the things I talk about, I do a lot with police and military, I do a lot so I do workshops and keynote speaking and I do one-on-one mentoring. And a lot of the things that I realised over time is that having that lived experience really helps bridge the gap between people who are fearful of dealing with the shit in their life and helping them get a different perspective and whether that's coming to work with a professional like yourself or whether that's about getting them just to take more responsibility in their life and highlight why they're not doing the things they should be doing. And it just really morphed over many years, 10 plus years now, to a point where I get to help people with so many different things in their life. And a lot of it's having somebody to hold them accountable and somebody who has, you know, come through that journey themselves, I guess, helps them to understand that I know what I'm talking about from that perspective. Can you talk a little bit more about what you mean in regards to taking more responsibility in life? I know that uh, uh, Strong Life Project is, is about helping you know, in some sense, alpha personalities yeah, live, 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 uh, 
you know, their best life, so, so to speak. Um, what do you mean by this, this aspect of taking, taking respons- responsibility over their life or, you know, sure. in parts of their lives? But, uh, one of my strongest ethos is, is that shit will happen in our life. That, that's, that's life. Everybody's going to go through challenge. Everybody's going to have difficulty. Take the responsibility for how you deal with that, whether you fall into a victimology mindset where everything happens to me, it's not fair, whether you are just making the excuses or taking the excuses to justify why you're not living the life you really want to live. And for me, the thing that I really want to get across to people that I work with is your life is as it is now because of the choices we've made to the reactions to the things that occur. So there are some horrific things that happen, people you know, who are victims of violence, sexual abuse, you know, people who've ripped them off in business, relationships, whatever those things are. For me, it was coming out of the police with PTSD and depression off the back of, you know, shooting a particular shooting incident, heaps of violence, heaps of other things like that. And for many years, I played the victim, probably three or four years, five years, I played the victim of, oh, it's not, you know, it's not my fault. The police did this to me. But then it was only when I realised when I take my responsibility and go, well, I joined the police knowing there was a pretty good chance that I could get hurt. I didn't understand mental injury at that point, but that was just the generation that we never spoke about it. But all of those things, my life turned around significantly and I'm a lot happier now because of my willingness to take responsibility for my reaction and the choices I make to get out of those scenarios. In terms of taking responsibility of, 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 reaction, of your reaction, Talk me through that a little bit. You, you, you said that you, you uh, I think you used the words, played the victim for three years or yeah. so. Um, talk, talk me through the, the shift in mindset or, or your perspective, the thought process of, of how you move from you know, victim to you know, taking control, so to speak. Yeah, sure, mate. In a lot of ways, it's, you know, I'm 50 years of age, a couple of months ago and I've probably played the victim for 50 years in some ways and probably will continue to. I think we all do, right? Because the, in essence, for me, it was, it was about going, this isn't my fault. Something's happened to me. So therefore, I'm going to sit back and, and blame everybody else and hope someone's going to fix it. But the reality is nobody's coming to fix your shit except yourself. And so I look at it like at the moment I'm in um, family court for the second time having a challenge with my daughter's mum about um, shared parenting time. Haven't seen them for a number of weeks, about 16 weeks. Now, when I went through that two or three years ago, my response to that was very different to now. I was pretty angry. I was pretty frustrated. Now I'm at the point of I go, well, there's a process that I have to go through. I don't have any control over how long that takes or it doesn't, but I do have control over the way that I maintain my reaction. So I text them all the time. They know I love them. There's a whole lot of background. Obviously, I've been pretty uh, deliberate in the way that I've connected with my girls emotionally. So then I go, well, do I then let that one part of my life impact the whole rest of my life for what could be six months, 12 months more? Or do I realise that I'm doing everything I can do to have the impact I want to on that situation? by taking responsibility for it, getting on the front foot, doing the things I need to do, then also take the responsibility for how I react. So I really don't harbour any any significant anger, hatred, anything towards a girl's mum. It certainly still challenges me for sure. But creating, controlling that reaction for me means then I have the control over how my life pans out. I'm not handing that over to someone else. And that to me is the epitome of responsibility. 
actually looking at ourselves and going, how did I get to where I am? And when I look at that particular scenario, and that's, you know, the most sort of recent challenge, I guess, in my life, I go all the way back to going, well, the girl's mum and I made a choice to get married. So that is where the responsibility became for me being in this scenario. That's just, that's life. If you don't take the responsibility for how things in your life have occurred, then you're also giving up all control and all ability to influence the outcomes. So in, in some sense is trying to f- continue to focus on those aspects of your life that you do have control over and Absolutely. In, some, in some sense accepting those things that you don't uh, d- despite yes. them being quite, quite um, difficult to, to hold or to maintain, uh, still trying to shift gently our, our thought process, our focus, our attention to what, what can we do? In, 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 in a difficult time. Absolutely. And it's not responsibility in the sense of I have to go out and be stoic and never show emotion. Like that's the opposite of what I talk to my clients and people I present to. My thing is going, we need to be emotionally vulnerable, especially as men and alpha personalities. So, you know, military and police, males and females. But, you know, there's so many alpha personalities in, in CEOs, athletes, both genders. But people in general, uh, we're afraid of vulnerability, I think. The majority of people are afraid of vulnerability, see it as a weakness, but it's that willingness to be emotionally vulnerable and deal with the impact. So I'm not for a minute suggesting that I haven't had many tears, that I don't have stress around that scenario or different things. I've had both in on multiple occasions in the last four or five months. But it's about going through that process, understanding that that emotion is going to be there, that challenge is going to be there. It's not the stoic you know, just suck it up and move on. It's actually about dealing with the process, understanding emotions is normal, but not falling into the hole with it is probably the best way to put it. Having feelings is obviously something that we can't control. Uh, it, it's, it's, yeah, that's uh, right. Yeah, that's probably that aspect of, you know, uh, let's not focus on what we can't control. Being vulnerable, you know, experiencing that feeling, allowing it to be there rather than fighting it? Is that, is that kind of what you're... Yeah, absolutely. Yep, definitely. Because to, it's the... I see with clients I work with all the time, people who... I got. A, I had a text message from a client last night. There's a woman, uh, early 50s, fantastic person, and I've actually worked with her and her husband, and they've, they're in the middle now of a trial separation on the back of the work we did. Now, it wasn't what we went into it for, but they got to a point of going, you know what, if we're taking responsibility for who we are, we both, we're out as connected, our relationships are not as good as we want and we want to take some time apart to see what happens. As she sent me a text last night, she w- was with a friend of hers who she hadn't seen for a while. She texted me and said, hey, this friend of mine's going to text you during the week. She really would love to talk to you, thinks you could be a great benefit to her. And I sent back to the, my client who I've worked with for 12 plus weeks now, we've become pretty close. And I text back, I said, did she realise you're not as obstinate as you used to be and she wants some of that, like, ha-ha. And she said back a text with the middle finger emoji to me and, and laughs and goes, yeah, something like that. That woman, for instance, when I was talking to her, I said, hey, the thing for you to realise is that when you're having these challenges with different people, you're, you're hidden behind the wall, you're blocking the emotion for yourself and you're actually causing a lot of the grief for yourself. She didn't like to hear it at first, but after a period of time, she started to realise how true that was. So then her taking that responsibility for her action, how she reacts, her emotion, meant that now she's in a much more peaceful and calm place 
so she can make the decisions to move forward and live the life she wants to live instead of that whole victim thing of, oh, it's not my fault, my husband does this, someone else does that. Other people will influence us and that's, you know, we can't deny that. But you are 100% responsible for how we react to it and what we let that mean in our life. Using the word, you know, victim's going to rub some people the wrong way, yeah. you know, and, and yeah. uh, that, you know, th- these days I think language rubs, you know, people the wrong way in, in, in you know, intended and non-intended ways uh, all the time. Um, what can you explain to me this, the, 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 this, this, you know, word victim? I just want to make sure that uh, sure. Uh, uh, we understand what's being meant by this uh, so I can get a bit of an appreciation of, um, yeah, is it just the responsibility part? You know, is, is, is it deeper than that? Can you, can you talk me through that a little bit? Yeah, sure, Nash. I, my, when I go back to my, like it's my experience, right, and then education and, and whatever over many years, when I look back in my life, the points when I was at my darkest and the points when my life really didn't work as well as I wanted it to, relationships, career, whatever the factor was, and there was multiple factors that, at one time that wouldn't work. The thing that's different between my life now and my life then is wisdom, maturity, some learnings, but ultimately it's that idea of not being a victim to my circumstance. So when I talk about victim, there are people who are legitimately victims of violence, crime, horrible situations. They are by no fault of their own and by no decision they've made had certain things perpetrated against them within, and there's so many multiple examples of those, right? Now, the thing that I look at and I find really challenging to talk to people about and often the thing I think that some people find really challenging about me is that when I talk about a victim mentality in this idea or victim identity in this idea, it is absolutely that perception of yourself that these things are happening to me and I have no control over them. So let's use a really simple example. If my partner and I who Rach, she's a beautiful woman, absolutely amazing. If I found out today that Rach had had an affair, then I would have two ways to deal with it. There would be multiple ways, but there would be two predominant ways. The first one, which would be probably the most reasonable and normal experience, would be to go, she's ruined my life, she cheated on me, that's totally unfair, I did nothing to deserve that and that's wrong. That would be a fairly reasonable response I suggest most people would probably have. That to me is the victim mentality because you go, well, that person's done a thing and I can't do anything about it. The mentality for me, and I talk about, I don't really use this a lot with clients. I use it with my daughters and they're a lot younger victims or champions. You can have a champion mindset or a victim's mindset. And the champion's mindset in that scenario would say, well, I'm really upset. I'm heartbroken that, that my partner cheated on me. But there was something obviously fundamentally in our relationship that didn't work. Otherwise, she wouldn't be looking outside our relationship for a connection. There is something about the way that I've interacted with her that meant that that wasn't as good as it could be. And she has her responsibility in it, but I certainly do as well. And this now offers me an opportunity to either look at the things in our relationship to work on to, to fix them, for me to leave the relationship and move on in my life. But out of both of those scenarios, I need to understand that there's growth and learning for me to be a better person so I don't repeat that behaviour. Because the fundamental thing around the victim mentality for me, Nesh, is if we stay stuck in that, we're just going to keep repeating the same behaviours, creating the same circumstance and get ourselves into a point in our lives where 
the same thing happens over and over and we just can't understand why. And hence the reason we see people that are in similar situations multiple times, you know, they keep losing their job, they keep getting, meeting the same sort of partners. Whatever the thing is that we end up creating the same circumstance over and over because I don't think as a species, but especially I think in the Western world, we have such an attitude these days of that attitude of outrage, what you talked about a bit before with language, and we want to blame other people for what happens to us. And that just means we're given all the responsibility and power away to change. So it's really not being a victim to one's circumstances, acknowledging the circumstance, but shifting one's focus away from that. There's, it's almost like a, a, an adjoining, adjoining term in language where it says, yes, I've been done wrong and I've been hurt and I'm upset and it's not fair. And then having a joining word of, and other aspects like, you know, I could learn from this or it goes out and it, it's telling me that something could be improved here or it wasn't going to be viable anyway, or you, you, you're trying to kind of shift to, to, to balance both, uh, both arguments, not just getting engulfed, consumed with, with the hurt, the pain, the misery um, that, that one would naturally go through in that type of circumstance. You know, it's trying to see both, both perspectives. Is, is yeah, that, definitely. is that, um, cause in, in some sense that that might come with the alpha personality. I mean, I, as a, as a psychologist, I, I think there are some personalities who do this quite, quite, uh, instinctually. Um, I mean, I, I know I do everything I do. Um, you know, I take immense responsibility for, you know, if, if something goes wrong in my life, it's because of me. Um, even mm. when, even when it's not in a literal sense, um, uh, the, the solution is going to always be because of me or, you know, I could have preempted this or I could have understood this or I could have just prepared myself better to handle this situation better. I somehow, have this natural, not it's not natural, it's, maybe it's learned or natural um, way of thinking where all the responsibility lies with me. Uh, I don't know whether it's a protect, protection mechanism to, to, to keep it in my court so I've got control because you know, I am a bit of a, bit, bit of a control freak. Um, I don't know why we always put the word freak at the end. I, I enjoy control as many of us do. Uh, but, but, but it's something that I suppose isn't something I have to work awfully hard on. Uh, you know, I, I take ownership over a lot of that. Yeah, that can hurt, but I, I feel it's protective. Is, is that a trait that you see in others? Is this something that, how, how, how do you kind of gauge it? Yeah, I, I, look, I think a lot of it, and you, you, uh, obviously a well-educated psychologist and probably more extensively educated in this part than I am. My personal opinion and all the reading I've done, all the research and all the education I've done, it's that old nature versus nurture thing, right? So there is certainly in my opinion, I've got a little two and a half year old goddaughter who I love to death, beautiful kid. And she's really outgoing. Her mum is like a daughter to me. She's 30 who I met five or six years ago and her and I are very, very close. And she little Ava is a beautiful young girl who I've just noticed and I'll spend you know a fair bit of time with her I've just noticed in the last probably month that she's starting to get a little bit more self-conscious around things 
both her mum and dad are amazing people, very emotionally connected. Her mum was raised through a lot of domestic violence. She's done a lot of work on that herself. She's a DV ambassador. She's a really positive person. But I look at Ava and think, where does she get that from? She's not born with that insecurity and fear, in my opinion, because for two and a half years, she hasn't given a rat's what anybody thinks. Now she's starting to get that. Now she obviously learns that from other kids around her, mum and dad, books she reads, who knows, whatever, you know, fairy tales she hears, whatever. So I think it really is now she's part of a predisposition because, uh, as you would be well aware, you know, some of Dr. Joe Dispenza's work, neuroscience work, that anywhere up to 90% of, of our personality and subconscious thoughts are uh, developed by the time we're about eight, six to eight years of age, depending on the research. So you think by the time I get to 50, I'm a product of all the experience I've had in my life and what I believe is true and what I don't. And I think there's a very common thread that runs through most people's thinking. Most people, and it's hard to generalize, but I think most people don't think they can have an amazingly happy life in every area. Most people think, that you can be happy-ish, but not everything can be awesome because otherwise I'd go, everybody would be living the life they love. So when I look at it that way, I think, is it, it certainly wasn't my predisposition in my personality. My mum and dad are both Irish Catholic descendants. My dad had 15 kids in his family. My pop went to World War II for five years and came back an alcoholic and battled depression. My nana was abandoned to a convent um, when she was three years of age and they had 15 kids, my mum, uh, her mum and dad, sort of similar, not quite as extreme a story, but not a dissimilar story. So they both grew up literally at the end of World War II in a state of, of real, real difficulty and challenge. I then take on that behaviour that I learned from them when I'm born in 1970. I look what my mum and dad do and I do the same thing. So I think in a lot of ways, it depends a lot about the people you have around you when you're young. And then two things as you get older your willingness that to change and, and actually work hard to develop new habits, beliefs and behaviours, which is like training a muscle. If you want your biceps to get bigger, you need to train them. If you want bigger biceps than going and walking 10 k's a day, you do that. You're practising a different thing. But the second part and the most important part is understanding that you can actually change the way you think. You can actually change your perspective. There's nothing set in your neurology or your neurochemistry that you can't undo, bar of obviously some diagnosable particular conditions. So I obviously acknowledge that. But I think for the great majority of people, just because you don't have a lot of self-worth or just because you think things always go bad or just because you think you're unlucky or you don't think you deserve a particular thing, you can change that if you're willing to do the work to change that. But that's where I think a lot of people fall down is they're not prepared to do the work. And what is the work? You know, willingness is is almost like a uh, a description of saying, what are you going to sacrifice or exchange in return? Is that is that is that kind of what what you mean by willingness? There needs to be an exchange to uh, feel better or experience life better or to 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 think better, so to speak. Uh, what what is, am, I, am I capturing that right? Are we Totally. Yeah. Because the willingness is one part, but the work is the other. And the work to me is simply the amount of effort, and I break it down into five simple things. Sleep, 
which is, is so critically important for our neurochemistry, so therefore how we feel, because emotions and feelings are essentially, as you well know, are essentially a uh, neurochemical response. It's the amount of cortisol, adrenaline, dopamine, serotonin, the mix there is in that, and many other chemicals that make us feel the way we feel. I think a lot of people have feelings that they don't realize they can control or they can influence. They just, I feel like rubbish today, so that's how I'm going to be all day. Now, I'm in the middle of moving house. We've got a lot of stuff going on this morning. I woke up early this morning. We're sort of walking around with a sense of stress and a sense of, oh, God, I've got so much to do. My mum's going to hospital tomorrow. I've got this and this to do. I'm going to take her. And then I literally stop, sit down, do some journaling, do some meditation, and then that evens out the neurochemistry and I feel really positive again. So the five things for me are sleep, uh, nutrition, what we eat, because what we eat has such a huge impact again, on our neurochemistry and how we feel. So if you're eating very high sugar diets and different things like that, obviously it's having an impact, hence the, uh, the addiction part of that. Training, exercise is, is so important. We were built to move and we're a very sedentary lifestyle. Meditation is huge for me. And as a 50-year-old ex-cop and what I would consider an alpha male, for me to be talking about meditation as one of the fundamental principles of what makes me so happy in my life, is weird when I go back 10 or 15 years, I would have laughed at me and thought I was an idiot. And then the fifth thing for me is what I call mental rehab. And mental rehab is being open to discuss your feelings and how challenged you are, working with professionals like yourself, looking at the sort of content you're ingesting. So I, I encourage people all the time, listen to podcasts like yours. I've got a podcast that, that I do 10 minutes a day, and I've done, I think, tomorrow's 1,600 episodes over the last four years, five years, doing things like, you know, reading books, limiting the amount of news you watch, limiting to the amount of dramatic conversations you have, get out of drama, don't get involved in gossip and all of that sort of BS. All of these things are the work. And it's looking at your life critically as in critiquing it, not being critical of yourself, although that may come as part of it, to look at it and go, what am I doing all the things in my life I can to live a really happy life? And I would suggest most people don't. And then most people, I certainly in my experience, worked all night work, so my sleep patterns were terrible, my circadian rhythms were terrible. My diet was horrible. I was living on fast food and Coke and energy drinks and coffee, drank heaps of alcohol. That was part of my de-stressing um, protocol, I guess, which I wasn't aware of. Had a lot of dramatic relationships was involved in heaps of conflict in the police, obviously, and that flowed into my attitude externally in my life. So I did all the things the exact opposite of what I do now, and I'm fundamentally happier now than I was 15, 20, 25 years ago because I take that responsibility and do the work, and the work is not fun. If I often, I didn't go this morning, but most Monday mornings I go and run, there's a set of stairs near me that's 122 stairs. I go and run 10 sets of stairs, and do 10 push-ups and 10 squats, squats, bottom, push-ups, top. So I end up doing 1,200 and something stairs, 100 push-ups, 100 squats with a couple of the members of um, Queensland Police CERT, like SWAT team. Now, I did go this morning because I didn't want to run late for our, our interview, but I do that most Monday mornings and I don't enjoy it. I don't enjoy at all getting up at four in the morning when it's dark. I don't enjoy going and running the stairs to the point where that voice in my head's telling me, stop, this is no good, you're too old, your knee hurts, all the excuses. 
but I absolutely love the result where I'm fitter and healthier at 50 than I was at 35 because I'm doing different work. Now that is easy to see in a, it's a physical standpoint. It's the same emotionally. If you put the work in and you practice the good habits, then you get the result. But it takes time to build and it takes effort to maintain. I don't think for me, while I know, I will never get to a point in my life where I go, oh, well, I've done enough work on this stuff. Because life's always happening, you're always evolving. And I go, if I could be as happy as I am now, today, why would I not keep doing those positive things? Who knows how happy I can be in another year's time? That's the work. Some people are more inclined to be physical. I'm, 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 I'm assuming that uh, there might be a small bias uh, for yourself being in, in, in police. I, I was in the military once upon a time as well. Okay, um, yeah. Which I, I, I think made it, made it a little bit easier because I was a physical person. I, I imagine there are psych testing. They look for people, um, at least in certain cores, um, that are willing to, to um, you know, have a, have a higher uh, tolerance to physicality and probably lots of boys, you know, at age 18, 19, meet that threshold. Yeah. <clears throat> and, you know, but there's some sort of leaning there and then there's probably also some, some training. What do you say to those people who haven't kind of lent in that direction or, for example, haven't trained that for some time? Obviously, you know, a four o'clock start is pretty, pretty uh, uh, I think, um, uh, spectacular. Um, I've got some colleagues who pull me along to, 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 to train earlier as well. Um, but without them, it probably wouldn't happen in, in some sense, this idea of, you know, being a victim to, to your, you know, surrounding circumstances. I'm kind of fortunate because I've got friends who are uh, athletic and, and, and very motivated. So you know, every time I meet with them, you know, it, it doesn't take very much to look at their physiques and go, wow, I can see your, your training on a regular basis. And they're always kind of like, come on, Nish, you should come along. Let's do some CrossFit. Or yeah. Let's go to the gym or let's go for a walk around the lake or let's go for a run. They, they're constantly encouraging. Uh, and in some sense, I'm a victim to my circumstances because that pulls me along. It makes, makes, makes yeah. it so much easier. I'm yeah. assuming most people aren't in that, in, in, in that um, circumstance where someone's dragging them along. It's, you know, kind of like a personal trainer ringing them up. You're coming? You're coming? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. How does someone get started who doesn't have a, 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 a positive circumstance already dragging them through? Yeah, great. Mate. And you touched on it. There's two things. When you talked about CrossFit, having people around you, I did CrossFit for 10 years and I've only stopped recently because my new goal for fitness is to be as fit at 70 as I am at 50. And that means going to probably not smashing myself as hard physically. I do different things now. Like when CrossFit, and I love it. I absolutely loved it. But my ego would get in the way. And as a 50-year-old man, I'm competing with 25-year-old men. And in my mind, we have a similar capability. And that's just not the case. So it's two things, mate. One is you're the sum total of the five people you spend the most time with. Surround yourself with people who you want to be like. So for me, I go and run the stairs with these a handful of guys from the SWAT team at different times because they're a lot, they're all younger than me. Well, one's about five or six years. Most of them are 10, 15 years younger. They're fitter, they're faster, they're harder. I would never win any competition with them, but it pushes me to be much, much better. 
So if I was to go and be training with a group of 50-year-old guys on average, then I would probably be in the upper level of fitness amongst those men. But that's not going to challenge me because if, if you're better than the majority of people in a group that you're dealing with, then there's no real challenge to push you. And like what you're saying, you've got these people who are so motivated, fit, they're like, Nesh, come along. And you're like, oh, okay, I'll go. And I'm sure in the moment of the training, when your heart's pounding out of your chest and you can't breathe, you're like, this is the worst idea ever. Why am I hanging around these lunatics? But then later on, you get the result, which is really positive. So you've got to surround yourself with people that encourage you and inspire you. And the second part is most people don't have, and I never had for years, and it's funny you say that about joining the police. I wasn't a physical person. I never trained or played much sport as a teenager. When I joined the police, I'm 93 or 94 kilos now, 73 kilos, I'm six foot three, so I was very skinny. And I didn't enjoy any of the physical training in the police. And it was funny because that was actually, and this is a really pertinent point for your listeners, that was an identity I had created because neither my mum and dad were fit. They weren't massively overweight, but they didn't exercise, they didn't go to the gym, they didn't train, they, they certainly, my dad was a cop for years and I worshiped my dad. He was my hero. I want to be just like him. And he would, would never have run a step in his life for fitness, would never lifted a weight, never did anything. He's physically active in other things. But he would never go training. We wouldn't go on bushwalks or those sort of things. That wasn't what our family was like. So in my mind, I just wasn't sporty. Now, the irony is at 50, people would look at me and my clients often say it to me and other people say it to me from social media content that I do. They'll go, oh, my God, I wish I was motivated like you are. You must have always just been intrinsically motivated for this. And I'm like, no, absolutely the opposite, 100% the opposite. I was fortunate that I'm a very naturally skinny build, so I never carried weight. And that's obviously a physiological predisposition. So I, wasn't, I didn't battle with obesity or, or, or anything in that, in that matter. My challenge was it took me a long time to put muscle on. But... Even through the police, my job was to run jump fences and, and, and fight people. I didn't do a lot of training in that. I was smoking for a period of that. I was so self-destructive in my mindset. I look back now, it's just insane. It was only when I got to the point, Nash, of going, I've got to change my life because so many things aren't working. And I started looking at what the people who were really successful and the people in the world that I saw, people around me and people who were, you know, out where, and this is sort of pre-social media being really strong, it's mid-2000s, I was looking at people that I could see, wow, if they're really successful, they're really happy, they seem to be living a vibrant life. One of the fundamental positive things that I found they had in common was physical fitness. So, and I just found when I trained hard, I felt that. It started very much when I joined, started doing CrossFit, probably, actually probably 12 years ago. And for having done CrossFit for 12 years, I should be a lot better at it, but I'm not because I'm not a natural athlete, I just grind it out. So for people to understand that just because you've always been overweight, you've always challenged, you've never been very fit and healthy, you've never been very physically capable, doesn't mean jack. I've got a client that I worked with recently who is in his late 30s, partner in a small law firm, had a kidney transplant three years ago, about 40 kilos overweight, and and he played rugby at school and different things like that, but he's always been a big guy. And it was during COVID. And he said, well, you know, he has, you know, some comorbidity factors, so he can't, he had to self-isolate pretty strictly. I said, mate, just go out walking. 
just walk every second day. And then I went to, he's got, he lives on an eight floor, he lives in an eight story apartment block. I said, go on the fire stairs and just walk up and down the stairs. I said, that's all you need to do. If you've got a significant amount of weight you're carrying, just walk. Now, Rach, my partner and I, she was a, uh, she's a New Zealand Kiwi girl. She went to world champs and, and um, com games as a gymnast. She's 44. She's very much fitter and healthier than I am. Her and I will go every Sunday, we put a weight vest on and do a 10K walk along the river here in Brisbane. Walking's enough. Like if you're overweight and struggling, just, just walk. Get up every morning, set your alarm, get out of bed, put your phone in the kitchen, put your phone on the other side of the room, put your phone in the bathroom. So it goes off, you've got to get up and turn it off before you wake the rest of your household up. And when you're up, have your clothes there in the, in the bathroom, put them on, walk out the door. Don't think you're going to do it later. It's, it's those little changes for people. And the predisposition part, I think, yeah, now for me it's easier. If I don't train, I get really frustrated with it. So I didn't train this morning. I'll go and train this afternoon and do something. But it still is very easy to get in the habit for me, if I stack three days in a row where I haven't done much, the f- to get up on the fourth day and train is harder than if I've trained consistently. So again, it's that consistency and work for people. I'm just trying to summarize this to understand. It's, it's almost like just keep trying, keep doing something, Absolutely. keep trying. Yep. If you don't get it done today, try again tomorrow. If you did get it done yesterday, still try again today. It, it, yeah. it, it, it's, it's this constant sort of a, a, a sense of improvement or sense of working toward something. Um, is that that also that focus change in terms of moving from these are these are my circumstances to this is how I want life to look like and, and actively participating in that, even though it's awfully painful, but, but trying to do something at least to, even if it's, taking one you know, uh, set of flights up to, to the first floor rather than yep, a lift. Any, anything will definitely. do. Just keep trying something. Definitely, mate. And it's, I use, it sounds like such a silly analogy, but I've used it with people and they seem to relate to it. If your listeners have ever heard of a bait fish ball, you know a bait fish ball where, the, where dolphins, they swim, swim in circles and they get a whole big ball of bait fish so they can feed. Now there's hundreds of fish in that ball. I saw it on a documentary years ago. And I look, that to me is what people look at anything in their life. Health and fitness is a great one. Where if you're overweight and challenged and you haven't got a great diet and you've never really been that fit and healthy, then it's like a dolphin looking at that 200 fish and going, how am I ever going to eat 200 fish? Now, if that dolphin looked at that and went, I can never eat 200 fish, it would swim away and eventually die of starvation. That's what we do. Because people go, I've got 20 kilos to lose oh my God, how will I ever lose 20 kilos? This is a freaking nightmare. This makes it so hard. So the stress that that creates for them then has them go and self-medicate with food, alcohol, whatever the thing is that is their vice that probably got them into that situation in the first place because they want the instantaneous release of that pain of not feeling great about themselves. If they just do what the dolphins do, they eat 200 fish in a group of, in a pot of dolphins, one fish at a time. So don't worry about losing 20 kilos just start stacking one day on top of the next of going and walk for 30 minutes, walk around the block. But you want to be walking so you're slightly out of breath, you're red-faced and you're sweating. But Rachel and I do a 10K walk every, every Sunday. 
you walk past people who are all in their training gear and they're obviously out training, but they're walking extremely slowly, just chatting away, looking at their phone. There's a benefit to that, but if you're going to do it, you might as well do it so it hurts. If you're training and you're not uncomfortable, you're probably not getting the best stimulus you could out of it. And again, have somebody, like tell people that's what you're doing. I've got another client who's very overweight at the moment who's a guy about my age, and I've got him walking these stairs, another set of stairs near where I live, and I go, you've got to do them three times a week, 10 sets of stairs, I don't care how long it takes you. The first time he did it, he did six, then he did seven, then he did four, just kept quitting. And I was really tough at him. I said, mate, you're paying me to help you and you're not doing the work. I said, this is absolute bullshit. Do 10, I don't care how long it takes you. It took him an hour and 58 minutes to do the first lot of 10. That, and then four weeks later, and like I'd text him on the days. I'd go, have you done stairs yet? Oh, no, I couldn't because of, I go, I don't want to hear your bullshit. Go and do them now. You owe, you have committed to three times a week for yourself. It's not for me, it's for you. Now he's lost 15, 16 kilos now. And um, still I get those same texts. He's now doing those stairs in 49 or 50 minutes. He's knocked an hour off the time only because in his mind, he was like, oh, it takes me a long time. Now he's doing it in 50 minutes, which is still pretty slow for most people who do it. But this guy's still 35 kilos overweight. I'm going, mate, that's, he goes, oh, but I'm slow. And people go past me. I go, who gives a shit? That's amazing. I said, you've knocked an hour off your time. Look at the positive things you're doing for yourself. So he does it because he knows at some stage I'm going to text him and check in. And if he doesn't do it, I'll send him a semi-abusive message going, you committed to it, go and freaking do it. So he, he has someone external to him holding him accountable. I go and train with those guys at, you know, 5.30 in the morning on a Monday normally because if, they, if, they, if they're not going, it's a lot harder for me to get there. Find people external to you in any of these things to commit to because if we just stand in our own head trying to do it, you're probably going to stay in the same place you are. Is it in some sense doing something, commit to something that's uncomfortable, commit to something Definitely. that's painful? Absolutely. So even if, even if I were to look at some of these other spaces where, you know, whether it be sleep, nutrition, that mental rehab, you know, simply not picking up the phone and looking at uh, social media could be one of those things because it's hard not to. So, you know, the, the absence of something can be, can be uh, the training as well. Absolutely, Ness, because you, you know, I'll challenge your clients to go, could they sit in a room on their own with no stimulus for 30 minutes? Just sit in your thoughts, nothing else, not a phone, not a laptop, not TV, not someone else to talk to, but sit in a room on your own for 30 minutes. Now, I, I could do that easily now, and I love spending that time on my own. Go back to when I was a more broken human is the way I talk about it, but a more challenged individual. I, I couldn't do that. I had so many things keeping me distracted because the part of my life that I was living, the, well, the whole of my life, really, there was a lot of challenges. There was good parts in it as well, of course. But So it is, do the uncomfortable things because most people, in my opinion, are driven by comfort. We as a species, through our limbic brain, the chimp brain, are driven to stay comfortable. And we're driven to stay comfortable because when we were cavemen and women, that basic part of our brain is no, hasn't evolved dramatically from that time. So that basic part of our brain just kept us alive. So we were looking at staying comfortable because if we were comfortable, 
then we were safe. If we were uncomfortable, that probably meant we didn't have enough food, shelter, there was some sort of danger to us or something similar. So that's why we want to stay comfortable. It's that reptilian monkey part of your brain, the, the caveman part, whatever you want to call it. When my alarm goes off at 4 or 4.30 in the morning and it's dark and it's raining, I go, oh my, God, I don't want to get up. And that part of my brain's like, stay in bed. You shouldn't get up. It's too cold. What if you get sick? This is not a good idea. The stairs will be slippery. What if you hurt yourself? Maybe you should stay in bed. All these excuses come up because that part of my brain is driven to keep me safe. I have to override that and go, you know why you're doing it because it has a good result. Just get up. So I just set the habit. The other thing I do is I get up and in the last six months, I've been doing cold showers every morning. So I don't use any hot water. So I literally get up, get in a cold shower at 4.30 in the morning and it's Brisbane. So it's not, it's not like Canberra, mate. So it's not as bad as you guys have it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it, you know, it's, a, it's a terribly cold seven or eight degrees at worst, but normally mid-teens. So uh, I can't really complain compared to Canberra. But I get in the cold shower and, it's, and I'm wide awake. I feel awesome. I walk straight out and get changed in my training gear. Then I have a coffee. Then I go and train. Now, if I got out of bed, at, even if I got up at 4.30, sat on the lounge in my pyjamas and started looking at social media or doing something before I had a cold shower, before I put my training gear on, then there's less chance of me doing it. It is absolutely about doing stuff that makes you uncomfortable because staying comfortable has got people to where they are right now. I stayed comfortable and didn't deal with any of the stress out of the police, got me to the point where I laid in bed with a Glock pistol in my hand going to end my life because I wasn't willing to be uncomfortable enough to get help, to talk about it, to deal with the shit that I'd created through the career I'd been in. I decided to go a million miles an hour in the police because I loved it. Now that meant I was in three or four fistfights a week. I was in multiple violent incidents every week. That took a toll, but I didn't have the courage and I wasn't comfortable to go and talk to people about it. So I just buried it until it caused me a great amount of stress and it nearly ended my life. That is what it means to get uncomfortable. Like, mate, the last thing I would ever have guessed that I would be doing in a million freaking years, 15 years ago, would be sitting on a podcast talking about the deepest secrets I have, fears, all that sort of stuff. I wrote a book with all of my deepest fears and vulnerabilities and insecurities that I published. I've done all these podcasts. I do all. I live my life so openly these days. No way was I going to be this guy. But getting uncomfortable enough in my life as I built one step on this next step on next step on next step day at a time over 15 years, I am so freaking happy because now this is the guy I am and I built that one step at a time. And that's that whole thing. People look at the whole idea and go, I could never do that. That's too much. I couldn't be that fit or healthy. I couldn't be that happy. But we all can if you're willing to do the work. And the second part is most of us don't think we've We've got enough time. I'm 50. I intend to live till I'm 110. Sounds insane, but I do. I, go, I fully intend to. Why not? So I go, I've got another 60 years. If, you, if you're a 30-year-old man or woman, you've got another 70 or 80 years to live the way medical technology is going. Where's your rush? Like, you, you've got all the time in the world to do what you want to do. But we, we've... A saying I love is we grossly overestimate what we can achieve in one year and we grossly underestimate what we can achieve in a decade. So if I'm 60 and I've taken 10 years to build this amazing business that I'm really fit and healthy and beautiful relationships and all these things, 
I go, wow, that's awesome because I've still got another 40 years to live. I think most people my age at 50 are going, oh, well, you know, 10 years and then I'll retire and then I'll just sit back miserable and wait for the sweet release of death. <laughs> they don't say that consciously, but that's essentially the life they're living. And to me, it just makes no sense. It's kind of interesting because it, 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 there's almost two worlds here where in some sense for you to, uh, I, I imagine it's not easy to be a dog handler in, in terms of there's a lot of people who want to be a dog handler, you know, so. Yeah, that's true. There's high competition, you know, it, it, they only take the best. Um, similarly with, you know, SWAT, um, you know, they, they only for take sure. the best of the best. Um and for for people who are in that sort of sort of space, there, there, there's a huge, uh, in, in many ways, requirement to sacrifice, and and you know your willingness to sacrifice, whether it be to be in you know, three fist fights a, a week and beat every major um, you know incident and be be heavily involved, put your body in front of, uh, you know, or you know, uh, uh, put put your body um, forward. Uh, in front of anyone for for the right reasons, obviously not in a um, uh, unsafe way yes. uh, or in a stupid way. My apologies. Many times unsafe, but n- not in a stupid way. Yes. Um, there's all these sacrifices that 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 you're willing to do, and that's probably what puts you in that um, you know successful dog handler space. How, how would you do it differently? Um, because you you kind of yeah. need to put in those hours. I'm I'm assuming if you're going to be um, acknowledged as uh, you know a senior dog handler or you know someone who's specialised in, in in SWAT or special services or whatever it might be. In many ways, you do have to kind of give it all up. Uh, you know your 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 time. You know your ambition is very strong, and then you've got to kind of give it all up. How would you do it differently if you were going to go through again, still requiring to tick all those boxes to hold your position? Yeah, sure, Ness. That's a great question. When I joined the police, uh, the dog squad in 1992, there was 43 what they called general purpose handlers, which is what I did, which is tracking offenders who, the, look, the other ones, uh, the specialist handlers look after drug detection and, and explosive detection. So I did GP tracking, apprehension, like biting, where we do the violent job. There was 43 out of 6,000 police in Queensland at that time. Uh, I got into it because I would go out on my days off and do ride-alongs with dog handlers. Every job there was when I was a uniformed policeman where there was a dog squad guy there, I would go. I just pestered them and pestered them and pestered them until essentially I got an opportunity and I applied for it. And because I put in all that extra effort, that paid off and got my foot in the door. Now, it's not quite the same now, but it's still similar. Uh, the CERT, the Special Emergency Response Team, and I want to be really clear about this because anyone that's worked in policing understands this differentiation. I never did their selection course. I never did their training. I worked with them, but I wasn't part of their unit. And that's a very, very important um, delineation. Those guys even more so. One of the guys I'm training with at the moment is running their selection course. They will get anywhere from 80 to 120 people apply every year. At the end of the process, at the end of a 14-week training course, they might get four. So it's extremely highly uh, competitive as well. Now, you certainly have to be a person who is willing to put in the effort for that. You can't be a 50-50 personality. My advantage is 
that same insane, addictive, obsessive personality that I was in the police. That was my whole life is what I'm like now with this work. Back then it was destructive, but I loved it. Now I'm just as obsessive and insane in my dedication to this as I was policing, but it's more positive, right? So it, it's more constructive, not destructive. Going back, the number one thing I would have changed, Nash, I wouldn't have done anything differently from the point of view of how I did my job. Um, you know, I crashed heaps of, I crashed 18 police cars in my career, had you know, complaints for assaults and all this other stuff. It was like a bad big great cop movie because I was so dedicated to it. I loved it. It was my dream from when I was six. My dad was extremely well-known police officer, very brave. So that was part of it. What I do differently now, what I would realise if I could take the knowledge back, which I couldn't, and part of why I talk so much about what I talk about is trying to help people understand challenge and struggle is freaking normal. We all have it. The people who look like the toughest are normally the ones who have got the most shit going on in the background. And you would know that better than me through your practice, right? So I go, I want people to be able to see now that the guy I am now compared to the guy who lay in bed 18, 19 years ago with a Glock pistol going to end his life. And that went, there was a number of years I battled suicide like that. The difference would be I would have the courage to actually talk about the stuff that was challenging me when it started to challenge me. That's the fundamental thing I would do differently. I wouldn't be any less committed. I wouldn't be less insane in the way I did it. I used to go to work on my days off. I would constantly get in trouble from my bosses for driving too fast or, you know, whatever the things were because I was so committed to wanting to help people and make a difference. That's what drove me. It's what drives me now. I want to be someone who has an impact on people's lives and helps other people. That is my fundamental drive in my life. I would go back there and be willing to, as a 21-year-old man, as a 19-year-old man, when I engaged in a particular incident that really scared me and that, you know, I was 19, I think, 19 or 20, and I went to a job, a very long story short, where there was a guy with a gun in a unit and I turned up with my partner at the time, prize in the dog unit. I'd been in the, in the police maybe a year and a half. I was barely 20 years of age. And as we ran up the stairs to this guy with the gun, we heard a gun shot and I kicked the door and we went in and the guy had shot himself and, and literally we got there as he was falling to the floor. Now, that was pretty impactful. I saw dozens of those types of jobs. More. Police see that shit every day. They could see, four, they could see five or ten of those incidents in a week. I didn't have the courage. I had the courage to kick a door in, to go in where a guy had a gun, where I'd heard a gunshot. But I did not have the courage to put my hand up and talk about my struggles and fears and insecurities. Absolutely freaking makes no sense whatsoever. Willing to put my physical life on the line, as every police officer and every soldier does, but no willingness to put my hand up and go, hey, I'm really struggling. Or, hey, that thing really worried me. That, my partner, and I don't remember what happened at the end of that job, but I guarantee you what didn't happen. My partner and I didn't get in the car, light a candle, sing Kumbaya and talk about our feelings. We didn't do that. We got back in the car, shut it down. You good, mate? Yeah, yeah mate, of course I'm good. It's just part of the job. Who cares? Move on to the next thing. I would have the courage to be vulnerable. It, it, it actually makes a lot of sense to me. And the, the, the reason why I say that is, 
I'm assuming like a lot of places that uh, have very strong camaraderie and you know, a, a team requirement and particular masculine uh, orientated mm. spaces. If, if someone were to put their hand up and say, hey, that's affected me in, 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 in a negative way, you're risking getting kicked out of the group. Um, I'm not suggesting. Absolutely. I'm not suggesting that that would necessarily happen. Certainly not these days. Probably as much as uh, some time ago. But maybe some time ago that was the environment that you were in. Is that you know someone? And, and I'm not saying kicked out completely and you never work again. But uh, it, it might put a question mark on you, or it might you know you might be um, uh, faced with um, uh, mocking behaviour or. Um, yeah. you know, all, all these sorts of uh, shifts in, in how the person, how, how the relationship is, you know, is, is one that we go and say, I don't want to be on the outer. And so the, the way to be on the inner is to maintain strength, you know, to, 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 to be you know, strong and tough. And so that didn't affect me. There's certainly a lot to be said about it. It's, it's actually a very positive mechanism um, in many ways. And then in many ways it's, it's not as well. Um, it's how we, how we go out and understand it. But uh, uh, it makes a lot of sense why after an incident like that, particularly only a year and a half in, um, you know, because you're still one of the, the new guys, you're still a junior. Um, yeah. Shut up and Absolutely. get on with it. Yeah. Yeah. And it is, and unfortunately, Ness, to pick up something you said there, I think I think we, as a society, handle, and I call PTSD, those things are mental injury more than um, a mental health condition. And I deliberately do that because, and the, the example I use for police and military is this. If you and I are cops and we go to a, to a domestic incident, for instance, and there's a guy with a gun in that house, we kick the door in to go in. We go in, I go right first into the room where he is. He has a, he has a firearm. He fires a shot at me. It goes over my shoulder, misses me, misses you and lodges in the wall. We tackle him, take the gun off him, whatever happens. Or we go in exactly the same scenario, but that shot he fires is seven centimetres lower, hits me in the, in the shoulder or whatever, and I survive. If I've been shot, there's a level of going, well, I understand there will be an impact of that and you'll be held up as a hero because you've been shot and different things and, and you probably get a reasonable amount of support. If the bullet goes over your shoulder, but you haven't been physically injured, my challenge is, is the mental injury that much different? Now, from a physical standpoint, there'll be more mental impact, absolutely. But from the pure fear, my life nearly ended, that sort of impact, it wouldn't be dramatically, obviously it's different, but it's not zero and 100. Sure. The guy or girl who has the shot over the shoulder, I was in an incident in Fortitude Valley where we chased a vehicle with two guys in it who went out with the express intention of suicide by police, fired dozens of shots at us in this pursuit. The police vehicle in front of mine, I was, large, I was seventh or eighth in the chase and I overtook police cars and got to be number two. And I was trying to get to be the lead pursuit car. And I was in the dog squad, I was on my own, to try and run their car off the road. One, because a guy was sitting out with his body, like his, his bum was on the window ledge and there was a rifle on the roof of the vehicle and he was shooting back at us. Now I didn't get shot. The people in the, the guy and girl in the car in front of me didn't get shot. They had 24 bullets in their car. There were bullets in the through the windscreen. It was just a miracle. Nobody got killed. 
those two guys ended up, we chased them on foot, they crashed their car and they, they both shot themselves meters in front of us. Now, that had a huge impact on me. I didn't realize at the time. I buried it for a long time. I, I did, didn't even talk about it really. Now I would go, wow, I really should, obviously sounds stupid. I probably should have put my hand up for more of that. I didn't go to debriefings. I didn't do any of that stuff because I didn't want to lose my job in the dog squad. I didn't want to get my gun taken off me. I didn't want to be taken off the road, which happens all the time. One of the things in policing that I think we do abhorrently or they do abhorrently now is exactly that. The minute somebody identifies as having a stress response, they take their firearm. Now, as a police officer, your firearm is as important as your badge. It is very much an indication that that's your, it's your identity. You okay. strap a gun on your hip and you go into your job. Take my gun off me. You're telling me that I'm no good as a cop anymore. And the challenge that I have had with many senior police is I go, by the time the person identifies as having some challenges, they're, they're a far less of a risk, in my opinion, of hurting themselves because they've had the courage to identify. The people who are much higher risk of suicide are the ones that aren't talking about it. And the majority of police officers that end their life and the majority of people that end their life, my, my assertion is, and you were probably a lot more experienced in this than I am, my assertion is people who kill themselves, very often, the greatest majority of them, people go, I never saw it coming. I had no idea they were challenged. They seem so happy because that's why people get to the point of suicidal ideations or killing themselves because they can't cope with what's going on. So for police, by the time they said, hey, I have some issues, first thing the police departments do is panic and take their firearm. That police officer's already probably been down that road, potentially, and they haven't done that thing, but that may well be the thing that tips them over the edge and damages yeah. them even worse. It's a kind of crazy, yeah. it's a kind of crazy, um, situation where they it, it it seems very much like that list at least the dealings i've had with my clients where you know if someone puts their hand up about mental health particularly in those sorts of environments where there's policing you know military and there's almost a punitive measure of you know we're taking your gun away or yep. you can't perform your duties on the other sense yep. is the moment someone says i'm not dealing well there's a punitive measure almost that goes against the organization which says you've damaged me uh, and so all of a sudden yeah. it's this whole new space of uh, uh, who's responsible um who's going to be responsible for any future action and it doesn't yep. really talk about you know if someone puts the hand up probably what we need to do is support them you know assist them but at the same time uh, also ask them if we go back to the start of this conversation also ask them to maintain their responsibilities and 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 you know make sure yes. they can function and do that i mean that that that's what we do in life anyway um i think you mentioned that you know your 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 mum's going to hospital today um you still need to perform all of your duties in life period it's yeah. kind of just what what's what's asked but we want to be understanding and supportive and compassionate around that and similarly say you know Sean, pull your socks up and you need to be there for, you know, the rest of your life, whether it be, you know, your mum or, you know, siblings or yeah. kids or, you know, partner um, to pay your mortgage. We, we, we kind of want to, you know, do both. And I don't know if the world's doing that very well these days where we can go out and say, hey, you are in pain. Um, 
it makes sense. You know, uh, a shot was fired, you know, just, just, just went above your shoulder. Um, that's going to have an impact. Uh, I'm not sure if I would necessarily uh, always call it an injury. Um, you know, yep. I've got, you know, we'll, we can talk about it for hours, but uh, sure, it, sure. certainly a, a, an incredible experience to, to have a life or death experience. That That's what it is. You know, you, you thought you were... Um, going to be killed uh, and how do we function in life with that having been an occurrence because you've signed up for that and the question is just whether you want to continue doing that or not um, but you know yeah I think the complexities are really in here uh, which, which is around who's liable um, you know who, yeah, who's going absolutely. to pay for the fear who's going to pay for someone experiencing fright it's like and, you know, and, and they're very real, genuine experiences. You know, everyone knows that there's post-traumatic stress and that, 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 that's very uncomfortable. And similarly, everyone knows that uh, this is an experience that uh, uh, we still have to live with in life. You know, we, 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 no, no one starts living our life for us post a life or death experience, you know, whether it be a car crash, um, whether it be someone you know, slips over and, and bangs their head and they find themselves in ICU for a period on a, you know, in a coma for yeah. a, a, a week because they just had an, an awful fall and they wake up going, oh my God, I almost died. Um, yeah. Life still has to go on. And exactly. And, there's, that's, and to me, it's the, the police and military one's very easy because it sounds a lot more dramatic, mm. right? You either go overseas and get shot at or sure. police get shot at, I get it. But what happens if your child has leukemia? What happens if yeah. it's a breakdown of a relationship? Very, very common thing, but extremely impactful. What if you have a period like I've had of disconnection from your kids? What if you know, yeah. a million po- things? All in those life... things are post-traumatic. Yeah, yeah. They're, Absolutely, they're, they're, mate. Yeah, response. One hundred percent. Absolutely. All of those things are traumatic events. Getting shot at by guys sitting on the roof of a car, people go, "Oh, well, that makes sense," but. Similarly, it'll be the, the trauma of dealing with the bureaucracy in the police department or a big multinational corporation or whatever. It will be the challenge of a, of a husband and wife who aren't getting along. It'll be the challenge of family dynamics where you have fallings out with siblings or parents or whatever. Friends conflict with people, whatever the thing is. All of these things are traumatic to people in varying degrees. And you and I can go through exactly the same scenario and you can have a far less of a reaction to that than I do for a multitude of reasons. My whole thing is trying just to get people to go, you know what? If you were in a car accident and broke your leg, then people would go, oh, Nash, what happened to your leg, mate? Are you all good? What can I do for you? Can I bring you some food? Can I help you out? Can I do whatever? If you have a mental impact or injury, mental uh, response to a particular traumatic event, we're far less likely to talk about it. And I do the opposite now. I went, um, every, I've done about five or six courses. There's four a year for the Soldier Recovery Centre up here for the Australian Army. And I go and present to 30 odd soldiers that have all forms of injury. And some are going back to the unit, some are transitioning out of the military. And one of the things I talk to them about is, is, uh, Department of Veterans Affairs, DVA benefits. There's benefits to soldiers who go medically, uh, who medically discharge from the military. A lot of these men and women are under 30. A pretty good percentage are under 25. And I say to them, 
if you're 25 or 30 years of age, you've got another 70 odd years to live minimum. And if your life plan is to go on government benefits for the rest of your life, you are going to have a miserable life and you're never going to fulfill anything significant that you could. And I use a fair bit of strong language with them. I'm pretty confrontational with them because they're soldiers. I go, they're fairly robust individuals. And I say to every one of them, this isn't Syria or somewhere similar. Nobody kicked your door in with an AK-47, dragged you out and made you join the military and fight. At some point, you decided it would be a good idea to join the military. And I say to them, put your hand up if any of you were surprised when you got to Kapuka for your basic training and they said that you could end up hurt, injured or killed as a soldier. And they go, oh, no. And I said, so when, why, are we, why do you become victims when those things happen? Because we all joined, you were in the military, I was in the police, you and I both joined Nesh, knowing that there was a pretty good possibility we would get some sort of injury. Now, we probably didn't think of mental injury or emotional injury or whatever, but we, you know, you only got to look at the news to see how many soldiers get shot and killed, police get hurt. Well, Sean, I'm, I'm, I'm actually not even sure about that. I mean, I, I know that when I walked in, I, I actually thought when I was going to walk into Kabuka, um, I, I prepared to be physically beaten. I, that, I, I thought when you walk in there, yep. they're going to flog you. Um, they're going to hit yeah. you and rough you up. They're going to kick you on the, while, yep. while you're on the ground. They're going to spit on you. Um, yep. I, I, that, that's what my expect, expectations were. Um, and then um, I'm not suggesting it wasn't hard. It was still you know, painful work oh, because yeah. of sleep deprivation and you know, high energy yep. output and, you know, being harassed and yelled at all the time, um, you know, it does break you down. Uh, that, 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 that's for sure. But I thought it was going to be a lot more vicious. Uh, I think the same way that I missed the mark, I, I think that some might've missed the mark on the other end and, and just thought, you know, I'm just walking in and I don't really know what I'm walking into. Um, uh, uh, Definitely. So, yeah, I, I, I think people are a bit blind, um, kids, especially kids as well. I think they're a bit blind because sure. um, most of us go through as kids um, with all due mm. respect to 18, 19-year-olds because I was there as an 18, 19-year-old. Yeah. Um, but, and I thought I knew everything. Now I realise how little I knew. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I, 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 think, I think when we do sign up, um, uh, I think we've still got a little bit of bravado in us. But um, uh, at the same time, you know, we're taught that. Uh, and you know, in yeah. theory, Kapuka goes out, and, and I think the words that they use is you know like weed, weed, um, you know, the weak ones out or whatever it might be. Yeah. It's a very strong yeah. uh, march. And, and look, the the training does. You know, people leave. Yeah. Um, uh, and you know, we the ones that go through probably say, oh, you know, the threshold wasn't very high. Um, but you know, in, in all honesty, it probably was, and only gets higher and higher as you go through and you know do more special service type type training. But I think we're and blind, that, and it is that whole understanding that I'm sure when you joined, I doubt there would be anyone who joined Kapuka with you, Nesh, that if you sat down and spoke to them, said, "Were you unaware that you could get killed as a soldier?" They would go, "No, that's pretty obvious." Now, do they, and I, I agree with you, do they rationally think about that? Probably not. So I didn't join the police and sit down and go, right, I wonder what the probability is that I'll be shot. Because I was just, and I think it's a human protection mechanism, I was like, well, I'll be fine. It won't happen to me. It'll happen to someone else. Of course. No, no, 
which is our natural reaction, right? When I look at, and even take it away from police and military because it's very specialised, when I look at general, just normal people in society, whatever normal is, general people in society, I think we grossly underestimate what we're capable of. We grossly underestimate what we are able to actually do. And something that I think, and I sound so much like my dad, which horrifies me, that these days at 50 years of age on my soapbox about society these days and those sort of things, I think we've lost a real essence of what, how old are you, Nash? You don't mind me asking? I'm 40. Yeah, cool. So 10 years younger than I am. When we grew up, and I'd say you probably similar generation, when we grew up, there was really an essence of you're responsible for your own actions. And there was a lot, you know, and this is another whole topic we could spend hours on, but it was a whole idea of people won, other people lost. There was, that was a reality of life. And I think we've, with very good intention, gone into trying to make the playing field even, make sure everybody gets a, um, a good, what's the word I'm looking for, good opportunities. And I absolutely believe everything should, we should have equality of opportunity, all of those things. But I think we've tried to manufacture a quality of outcome for people, and that's very difficult. And what we end up doing is we end up giving people too many opportunities. And I don't mean a gen- oh, generation, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, they're a lot softer than I was. Every generation says that. That's a human nature thing. My parents definitely think that they, their generation was a lot tougher and, and more responsible than mine was. And they're probably right in some respects. But I think where we've let ourselves down and let each other down is ultimately everything is my responsibility. Your life is yours, my life is mine. And when we can encourage people to take that responsibility and then give them the tools to understand how they can influence their lives, then we really help them significantly. I think where we've hit a bit of a challenging time at the moment is we're not telling people it's their responsibility. We're trying to fix everything for people in general. And then as a result, we're not giving them the skills and the tools to do that either, which I think is really difficult. I'm just as you speak, I'm wondering whether that could be a function of uh, age. Uh, you know, oh, back, back, back in the day when your parents, you know, were raising you, their life expectancy was very low. Mm. And so, you know, we, we've, since the 1960s, we've uh, increased our lifespan by an extra year every two years. Uh, so, yeah. you know, 1962, yeah. you know, we had an extra year on 1964, an extra year on 1966, extra yeah. year on. So now, obviously, yeah. our, our life expectancy is around about that 80 uh, mark, and it used to be around 50. I'm wondering whether with the yeah. luxury of age, uh, we aren't required to take responsibility uh, as, as early and hence why we're marrying uh, later we're having kids later i mean i just think about it my two girls um who are very young i, I just think to myself wow you know th- there's going to be a, a university gap year most likely that's what kids do these days that was unheard of you know um yeah, for sure. they'll, 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 you know of course they're more than welcome to stay you know at, at home and it's like of course it, it's said in such a way of how else would it be um yeah. you know they, they might be at home while they do all of their university, that's what they choose to do. That is, uh, of course, but there's, there's kind of like um, there's time, you know, there's time for them to, to be 
kids. Um, you know, they don't have to work on the land um, or, you know, work yeah. in a family business. Or, uh, and I'm not suggesting people aren't going through, you know, major financial strain and the like. But, you know, uh, it, it's very rare for me to hear these days people taking second jobs and, you know, work, yeah. working, you know, a night shift and then going to a job or, you know, working seven yeah. days a week. Um, and obviously I've got a bias because I only saw the family I grew up in, um, but mum and dad were, you know, basically seven days and, 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 you know, yeah. night times and you name anything they could get their hands on. That's probably what migrants do. Um, or some at least. Sure. Um, sure. So m- maybe it's a function of age. Um, just, 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 just talking out loud. And I think it's, yes. Well, function of history. Function my apologies. Of yeah. Yeah. And it's a function of this. I think this, these devices are phone. really, yep, yep. Uh, yeah, my phone, right? Yeah, sorry, but of course, for the people who aren't watching video, it's it's definitely a function of everything you said. I couldn't agree with more. But we also we have people. I saw a woman uh, on uh, who's an Instagram influencer who, when COVID hit, her whole business model and her business model. I don't follow her, so I don't know it intimately. But as I looked at it, appeared to me that it was. Um, she was very much, she's a very attractive young woman who would take bikini shots and different things. And obviously people would pay her to, to, you know, wear their, their clothing or sponsor their things, whatever. She's an influencer. Now her business fell and she goes overnight, my business is shut down. I don't know how to support myself. And she was quite distraught, but she was also quite angry that that would happen. And nobody was helping her with that. Now, let me put it in a context that's not going to sound as judgmental as with her. If I look at my business, similar to hers, my business is based on my advice, my education, and people wanting to engage with me to receive that. That's the business model I've chosen. I have great flexibility. I, have, I love what I do. I have immense purpose. But there's not the security of me being a PAYG employee for someone else. But I take that risk because I choose to do what I do. Now, during COVID, I was very fortunate that my business sustained itself and actually increased slightly because of obviously helping people stress and different things. Now, if it didn't, then that was my responsibility to handle. And I absolutely sat down and had the conversation with Rach, my partner, and I, and she does high performance work. She's a physiotherapist by trade. And we sort of said, so what will we do if we have to? If I have to go and stack shelves at Coles, would I do that? Yes. Do I want to? No, I don't. Would, would that be a challenge to me to go from doing what I'm doing now to do that? Yes, it would. But would I do that? Absolutely. Because I have to. Mm. Because I have two daughters who I financially support. I have, I'm responsible for myself my life. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what the government's done, my personal opinion through this whole COVID thing with JobSeeker and JobKeeper has been amazing. I think they've handled it brilliantly in my opinion. But I can see a real challenge coming in September when it's when it's it changes and then next year when it comes off because even through what is in my lifetime, the most challenging scenario we've been in, it's certainly the most challenging as a society that I've seen in my 50 years. We've rightfully so have helped people financially. So we haven't had just catastrophic economic impact, even though it's been significant that I go, we've still, we still haven't had to deal with that in the sense that we've, we've, soften that blow now that blow i think that's still going to come and i think we should have done that but again we're again in a society if we went back 50 years 
coming out of the end of World War II in 1930s in the Depression, there were no real government handouts for people. They just survived because they had to survive. Now, yeah, I was, gonna, I was just going to say, maybe, maybe being uh, you know an alpha high achiever, your response rate is faster. Yeah, I'm, I'm assuming. No doubt, I, I, I'm, I'm assuming yeah. that the the lady that you were referencing, uh, she'll still fall on her feet, even though she's quite devastated at the moment and quite upset. You know, one of her her uh, core beliefs in her mind about how the world would 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 be has been fractured. Yeah. Um, Definitely. And with experience, you you've done this several times over, and your response rate is much quicker, and you're you know logically sort of driven, and and we just say, all right. If I can't actually make an income from this, I need plan B. And here's my plan B, here's my C. Even though you can kind of be upset and grieve or whatever it might be uh, simultaneously, uh, maybe other people's response rate is slower. And may, may, maybe that's what you're talking about as, as part of this, uh, uh, you know, the Strong Life Project is having a faster response rate, um, trying to trying to shift that focus a little bit faster to, to reduce some of the grief, some of the, the angst, um, still living with it, but, but trying to uh, shift quicker um, so that uh, we can kind of reduce a little bit of pain and suffering in the process and, and you know, land back on our feet earlier. Mate, definitely. And I think there's a very interesting point in that that is different. Different, sorry, from my experience, but tends to yours. Having grown up, like I said, with immigrant parents, and and uh, I didn't grow up with immigrant parents, but certainly grew up with that, you know, not a lot of money and a lot of mum and dad worked very hard, those sort of things. Uh, I take my hat off and I say this to so many people that I meet, and I mean this with utmost respect, and I really sincerely mean this. People who come to Australia as migrants and work so hard to reestablish a life or establish a life for themselves here, I think deserve such immense praise and and to be welcomed into our community because it takes so much effort and it's so challenging and difficult as you would no doubt have experienced as opposed to someone like me who was born here and I've just taken our country for for granted and we live in such an amazing place from a point of view of how supported we are by our government the opportunities we're given all of those things which I think out of majority of countries in the world Australia would be in the top single digit percentage of that and yet we still, as a society, are quite critical and negative about many things. And I think part of that is we haven't had, in the last 50 years until now, a global significant challenge to deal with. So for my beautiful girls who are 15 and 12, and I love them immensely, I was really, really concerned for a long time about their mum and I being divorced because of how that would impact them negatively. Sure. And no, no doubt it will, and no doubt it has. The positive side of that is I look at them, they were seven and four when we separated and their mum and I have had some significant conflict through that period. I'm also not naive enough to believe my, my version of that is true. There's three sides to every story, as we all know, the, my, the other person's and the truth. But the advantage I see in my girls now is there's a level of resilience in them because they have been through some difficult times as younger children. And as much as that would not be my choice, it's been a really good secondary impact. I think because we've lived in such a great economic time for 50 plus years, that things became so important and we lost the essence of what's really important, which is human connection. The human connection and interaction and relationship we have with each other 
is the most important thing there is. But we've got caught up on going how much your house is, what car you drive, your $20,000 watch, your $3,000 suits. And when I worked in commercial property, that was that, you know, there was people I met there that were fantastic, but there was that real essence of, of money, this, that, and I was earning very good money, but I just didn't enjoy it because it felt soulless to me. I think we're in a time now if people are willing, and, and I don't think we're probably at the point yet where the majority of people have the ability, willingness, or um, awareness to do it because we're still very much in the, in the challenge panic phase of this, of COVID-19 and now with Melbourne having an, an explosion in cases in Victoria, we're, we're in a very difficult, like the initial trauma stage. But there's gonna be an amazing opportunity for people coming through this to actually find out what's important. And what's important is each other. And what's important is being emotionally connected and loving and not giving a rat's how many Instagram followers you've got it not caring about, you know, so many other things, cars, houses, whatever, because we're getting stripped back financially as a society back to what matters, and that's looking after each other. And I saw something yesterday, and I don't mean this judgmentally at all, but it just blows my mind as to where, where some people's priorities lay. And it was a young, two young girls who were probably just 20 or early 20s walking along. And full disclosure, when I was 20 or young 20s, I was a moron. So anybody that I'm criticising, they're far more emotionally aware than, than I was. But these two young women, very attractive young women, they walk along the street and one of them had a pug dog, well, a little pug, which seems to be a very cool dog for young, young girls. And this pug dog in Brisbane, 19 degrees, had a full hoodie, like jumper, like a human's jumper that was made for the dog, four legs, the body, the hoodie on the back of it. And I just looked at it and thought, wow, you're obviously living a pretty good life, which is fantastic for her when your focus is whether you should get a hoodie for your pug or not and what that means. Now I go, I'm not, I'm not criticising her at all, but I go, isn't it interesting that at some point that seemed like an important thing? Now she might be doing it as a joke. She might think it's funny, whatever. I don't know. But it was something that just stood out to me to go, wow, when somebody's in that scenario, you would imagine the rest of their life's okay. Maybe it's not, I have no idea. But there are people who, you know, I know, and we all know, I've been very fortunate through this process so far. I know so many people, I've got a very good mate of mine who runs a catering business in Canberra, who is, you know, it's, a, it's financially very tough for them. And he's working very hard to maintain it, keep it going. I think we're gonna come out of this as something going, wow, everybody's, well, everybody, majority of people are going to have a, an impact in this, even if it's been locked down for a period. This will be an opportunity for people to rebound into their life and be really happy, connected, all of those things, if they wish to take that opportunity. Lying in bed with a Glock in my hand was the best thing that ever happened to me in my life because it drove me to be a better person. I wasn't from 2002 to 2005. I ended up self-medicating with cocaine and ecstasy. I drank heavily. My daughter was born on the 17th of February, 2005, and something just switched in my brain. When I went, now I have to get my shit together. And over the last 15 years, I continue to do that. I by no means think I'm there. I by no means think I'm an expert, but because of the challenge and the difficulty that, that I have created in my life, I've now got to a point where these difficult times have helped me build resilience and some awareness. I just hope people take that opportunity in these times so they can actually see for themselves that 
this will be an amazing opportunity for us to look back and go, wow, if I could get through that, I can get through anything. And I think that's a really important thing for us to learn. Absolutely. Sean, we could talk for hours uh, or hours more. Uh, before we before we finish up, because I know that you've got you've got uh, uh, some engagements on afterwards, and likewise, I've got clients. Um, how can people find out more about you and the work that you do? Yeah, thanks, Nash. I've really enjoyed talking to you, mate. Uh, people can find me at thestronglifeproject.com is my website. If they search the Strong Life Project in Google or my name Sean S H A U N O Gorman O G O R M A N. I've said before, I've got a podcast that's got 1,600 episodes. I do 10 minutes a day on different topics. Uh, I do a lot of social media on all the social media platforms. I put out heaps of free content because I want to try and help people by giving my opinion and advice on what I've learned and what's worked for me, for them. So for people to engage with my content, there's so much of it is out there for free because I really want to impact them. They can go onto my website. I do one-on-one coaching and mentoring programs. I do workshops. I do keynote speeches. If they go to thatstronglifeproject.com, all the information's there. And if any of your listeners listen to this and, and want to have a chat about it, want to find some more information, anything they think I can help them with, so happy for them to reach out to me through the website. It, uh, helping people is my passion. It's my purpose. It's what I love to do. Fantastic. Thanks, Sean. I really appreciate your time and uh, giving us your insights. I like that idea of just j- just giving an opinion and, and, and letting everyone go out and pick, cherry pick, use what they can, you know, grab whatever resonates and, and, and leave the rest behind. At least there's, there, there, there's a lot to grab there, you know, uh, for each person because we're all in different circumstances and, and you know, I think it's, uh, it's great to, to, to see different perspectives. So I really appreciate you coming on and um, yeah, thank you for your time. Thanks so much, Ness. And that, I don't, you know, I don't uh, propose I have all the answers. All I have is a different perspective and absolutely if, if what I say challenges people and I've offended them, I don't want to do that. But if it engages us or, you know, motivates us to look at things differently, then I think the more conversations we have like these, the better off we all are. So thanks so much, mate. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks, John. Keep strong, mate. Thanks, Nash. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review. Subscribe, share it via social media, and tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources and just lastly if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team develop your experience and get into some exciting work come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out i'd love to hear from you